So, Will. Yes? In this week's film, two of our lead characters are met when one of them arrives as a guest speaker at the other's high school, in which he discusses the role of the arts in society and is a famous painter. I don't even think he is a famous painter. Or I think he is like famous. I think he is a a locally known painter. Yes. Enough to get a very nice apartment and to be invited to give a speech at a school. It's also 1947. There's a housing boom. That is true. And I guess he is also in an apartment in LA, so that is inherently a downgrade. Well, this is pre-Roger Rabbit, so there's still public transit. Yeah. That's true. It's a nice apartment. It is. This movie's great. <laughs> I'm so glad you liked it. But it does lead me to ask, who are some of the most fun speakers you had in high school? I mean, the one that everybody likes is the the drunk driving one, right? The people who come in and they have the beer goggles. The things that you can put on and allegedly distort your vision the way that alcohol does. And that you like try to walk in a straight line and you fall all over and that's a good time. I did not get that one. You didn't get that? That's a classic. No. Ugh. I guess in Singapore, they were just like, you won't commit a crime, so we don't have to train you about it. Well, in Singapore, it's you can't drive until you graduate high school. Well, there's that too. I mean, the one that really lodges in my head, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a ton, but the one I always remember is uh, I went to Catholic high school, and at some point in our freshman year, there's this married couple that would come in every year to talk about the importance of abstinence. And I don't remember anything from this. They did split us up by gender. So I was eventually in a science lab with just the other dudes and this guy. And the only thing I remember him telling us is that guys' brains are like waffles with lots of different compartments. And women's brains are like spaghetti, which is just all over the place. And all I remember about that is like, So when a guy and a girl get together, that's like spaghetti on waffles? Like, what am I supposed to think of that? Like, I was 14 and I was like, this metaphor doesn't work. When I eat waffles, I want more waffles. And when I eat spaghetti, I want more spaghetti. I don't want to mix the two. Yeah. (laughs) So clearly that metaphor does not track. Yeah, that's the only thing I remember from that one. I just remember the waffles and spaghetti. Did you ever get the tape? No, I learned about the tape later. Yes, I got that in uh, eighth grade health. Taught by, of course, a PE teacher. Yikes, on several levels. Public school in Georgia, baby. My health class, which was one semester, not even one semester of PE. It was like intermittent lessons in our PE class. Instead of like playing soccer, we would get health. Which was mostly like, here's what drugs do, don't do them. Here's what STIs are, don't get them. Did you get just like a slideshow of what STIs look like? I don't even think we did. I think we had a whiteboard. Yeah, we got a slideshow of, like, here's what herpes looks like. Here's what genital warts looks like. Here's what the discharge from gonorrhea looks like. Stuff like that. We were annoyed because the other sections watched Supersize Me, and our section did not. Yeah. Ugh. My high school speakers that I remember most are uh, much more traumatizing and have had long-lasting influence on me as a person. Oh, no. In my freshman year of high school, I may have told you about this before. I was taking a class about, like, it was a health class. I think it was about, like, body systems. And so, as a fun guest lecturer one day, a narcotics officer from the Singapore Armed Forces showed up. Yikes. And we got a a fun little demonstration of a 
exactly how much drugs you need to be carrying on your person for it to be automatically considered a trafficking charge and as such result in hanging. We watched a video that explains the process of getting caned and learned a lot about why you shouldn't do drugs. That left a very uh, long-lasting impression on me, and as such, I have never had a temptation to do drugs, so it worked, I guess. Uh, Much more than the abstinence-only pledge I signed in elementary school worked. (laughs) God, it's f***ed up the education system in Georgia that I went through. You know... I think it's kind of understandable that I might have a weird relationship to sex every so often to this day. That does make sense. Elementary school. I signed a I'm going to wait till I get married to have sex pledge in fifth grade. I went to public education and my sex ed was more religious than your religious school, I think. I mean, probably. To be fair, like, I don't know that I got a lot more than the spaghetti and waffles, but (laughs) we got something. I did like then take a higher level biology class and I learned like biology and we had to draw diagrams and like my friends drew the penises as big as they could, you know, like high schoolers. Ah, yes. We had another person come in to talk to us about drugs who was in recovery. And she told us about how with cocaine, the level of endorphins or like dopamine or whatever, the rush is higher than the next highest thing, which is orgasming. And if you do too much cocaine, you will no longer be able to feel good (laughs) orgasming. That's great. And also, honestly, as a high schooler, effective marketing for not doing drugs. It's like, I want to enjoy orgasming for the rest of my life. Maybe I won't do cocaine. That's awesome. See, as a teacher, I more and more have come in to be like, you can put anybody in front of kids and they'll be like, oh, that person's an expert. Truly anyone. We also had someone come in to give us a presentation about why cyberbullying is bad after the uh, form spring epidemic that happened, where oh, you no. could ask anonymous questions online. See, I'm not a person that people tell gossip to. I'm a person that people assume already knows the gossip. So I never actually do, because people just like allude to it as though I understand, but it's too awkward to be like, give me all the juice. So I'm the person who would always be at those assemblies being like, Okay, this is clearly about something that happened, but I don't know what it was. I think I was, like, so outside the sphere of people that were getting bullied that I was so below notice that I never got cyberbullied. You weren't worth the effort. I don't think I ever made a form spring because I heard about it, and I was just like, hmm, I don't really want to get cyberbullied, so (laughs) I'm not going to do that. They did not ever bring in a, a knight in shining armor. To speak to us. No, they did not. But they did certainly do that in this week's movie. And I want to talk about that and more on this week's episode of We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast where we dig into the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week... To round out our month of high school romances, we are talking about the very odd love story of the 1947 film The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. I feel like this movie taught me more about American society in the late 40s than most of the dramas we watched. (laughs) Do tell. I feel like this movie, while obviously presenting an idealized image of 
the fact that her sister is a woman and a judge. Oh my gosh, the way it introduces that is so funny. Because there's the only black character in this movie is a housekeeper, of course. She goes to wake up Shirley Temple first. Then she knocks on the other door and is like, Your Honor? And is like constantly addressing the person in the other room as a judge. Goes in, is like pulling up the blinds like, Hey judge, here's what's going on. The whole time, the shot is framed so that we can see a body on a bed, but a lamp is blocking the head, the person's head. Until finally, they sit up, and it's Myrna Loy, and it is clearly meant to be, like, a shocking moment. (gasps) It's a woman, and she's a judge. I watched this movie with my wife and her parents, and I'd already seen it before, but I, like, yelled out loud. I was like, ah, it's a lady! (laughs) I mean, I will say this movie did teach me one thing where I was just like, huh, a woman judge, and I googled it. And the first woman was, like, elected judge in the 1870s. But was that on Leap Day? It was not on Leap Day. I think it was in a uh, Western territory where they don't have enough people. All the progress for women happened in the West because of a shortage of people. Right. But, yeah, I mean, women have been practicing law in the U.S. for longer than I thought. Yeah. But I think, like, this movie really felt like a transition into the classic idea of the 50s. Like, this movie feels like... A very early invention of the teenager as a entity, someone who you can market a movie to. You think about this in comparison to The Best Years of Our Lives, which comes out the year before. That's 1946. And that movie is so much about a country still wrangling with the war. Mm-hmm. And this movie, some of the pieces of the war are still going on, right? There's still a draft in place. But... Really, we've moved on and we're doing, like you say, like the 50s thing, the rise of adolescence, right? It feels like we're closer to Rebel Without a Cause, ultimately, than we are to Casablanca. Like, the draft is a joke in this movie. The guy who gets drafted is, like, portraying himself as this important... He describes himself as, like, you wouldn't treat a veteran this way. He has not even started yet. But she's just like, you're not going to see combat. Like, take it down a notch. Right, in this we're laughing at the kid right out of high school who gets drafted, whereas a couple years earlier, he'd be a tragic hero. Right, and even the architecture, like their apartment or house, the one that Shirley Temple and Myrna Loy live in, is so clearly a early transition in a white picket fence but it's also like an early transition into the modernist architectural style of like the different levels within the house, some of the furniture and the layout of the like just the walls is kind of modernist but they have these really traditional oil paintings on the wall and so this is where you really feel the transition out of the war into like the post-war boom yeah that's a really good point and still playing with the like wow women have really taken on some new roles Mm -hmm. attitude of the war era right and that's the it's i was also thinking about that it's like the tail end of the brief moment of progress for women before it gets rolled back in the 50s also the outfits i was just like oh so 90s fashion looked back to the 40s in some ways didn't it (laughs) you just feel like it's really baggy it's really baggy the shoulders they were just like let me recreate the shoulders on beard alloy's suit i mean also women in suits in general so I first saw this movie about a year and a half ago. I have this habit of just, like, going through the TCM lineup and hitting record on a bunch of stuff. And then at, like, 11 p.m., I'll go through it. 
I never wind up watching anything I recorded on TCM that's longer than like an hour and 45 minutes because I only remember to look at my TCM recordings when it's like 11 p.m. and I'm like, what's a comedy that I can throw on? So one night, like late at night after my wife was asleep, I threw on The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer and I was like, this thing rules. We have to do it on the podcast. It's so weird, this movie. It's, It's a very strange movie. And like, I have a lot of affection for it. At the Oscars that year, it wins Best Screenplay and gets no other nominations, which I think is kind of appropriate for this movie. It's not terribly well-directed. The performances are solid, but there's nobody in the movie where you're like, this is among the best performances by that actor. But it's got a lot of really good jokes, and the story structure of it is so audaciously absurd that you have to love the screenplay element of it. The... Scene in the nightclub where everyone just keeps showing up and sitting at the table. It's It's so funny. Wall-to-wall jokes. All of them land. Three jokes are landing at the same time. It is a very impressive feat of screenwriting. Right, that's the thing. So, like, Sid Sheldon, good on ya. And I think the movie ended up where it ought to have, in the Oscar sense at least. Yes, I agree. I think that this movie is an incredibly fun time. I laughed out loud a lot. I don't think it's, like, the best movie, but it's so worth watching for 95 minutes. Yes, exactly. And part of it is just, like, Cary Grant is kind of the perfect movie star. By King Cary Grant. Right, where he is, like, handsome, and he can play drama, right? Like, he can do your Hitchcock movies, but he is also, like, one of the greatest comedians ever in film, both, like, verbally and physically. He's just so good in this movie. He and Tom Cruise are, like, the only guys where, like, I'm in the mood for an actor. Where I'll be like, I'm in the mood for a Tom Cruise movie or I'm in the mood for a Cary Grant movie. They're the only people I'm like that with. They're some of the only people that have such a distinct, like, character that isn't just one character. That, like, is kind of transmutable while still maintaining that essence. And, like, that's what makes someone a movie star. Shirley Temple is also crushing it in this movie. (laughs) She's... So funny in this movie. It's funny, like, my wife had seen a lot of, like, Shirley Temple child performances, right? The classic Shirley Temple stuff. And in this, she's, like, I think, like, 19 when they shoot the movie. Maybe 18. But, like, she looks like Shirley Temple, but older. Like, it's kind of uncanny. Right. But she's so good as the high school senior who thinks she's a full adult, but still has a lot to learn about the world. She's so pompous. Right, all the way she talks about, like, how, like, everyone else is just a child, but, like, she's quite a bit older in in her mind. I mean, you see where she gets it from, obviously. Yeah. My wife pointed out she kind of feels like the younger sister in the Philadelphia story. (laughs) That scene where the younger sister walks in, like, speaking French, trying to show off to the reporters. Right. But, you know, if we actually got to see her be a character. And it is always just fun to watch a movie where... A family's goal for the daughter is to go to law school. (laughs) Like, you know, she has a path ahead of her as laid out by her older sister slash guardian. And as well as her uncle and great uncle, they're all like, this young girl is going to go to law school. And it's just like, nice to see that in an old movie. Well, it's these progressive times. It is. And, you know, we her sister is a judge, and that's, you know, a shocking revelation at the beginning, but treated very seriously throughout the movie. Right, it's never a joke that she's, she's a judge. 
it's like the reveal, but it's, yeah, she is a good, competent judge. And there's no one in the movie who ever questions that, right? There's, there's no point where, like, there's this scene where she has all the people who are in the fight at the vampire club. And none of them is like, why do we have a lady judge? No, everyone respects her and takes her very seriously. The movie does not end with her giving up her career as a judge to be a wife. It's just so nice to see a movie that does not have the teeth taken out of it in its treatment of women. You think about the way that, like, Woman of the Year kind of falls on its face at the end. And His Girl Friday, like, she gives up her career in that, too. Yeah, it's kind of cool. You're right that this one really doesn't do that. And that you also just get such ridiculous scenes like the sack race, the obstacle course. Like, it's just, let's put Cary Grant in silly moments. That really reminded me of the obstacle course from Mr. Mom, where, like, there, kind of the same thing is going on, but played straight, where Michael Keaton is like, I gotta win this obstacle race to prove to my wife that I can at least do something. And in this, honestly, like, there's no reason for this obstacle course. No, it almost feels like Cary Grant should be trying to lose so as to seem less attractive to Shirley Temple. But at this point, he wants to be more attractive to Margaret, Myrna Loy's character. So it's like that like fun moment of where he is trying to get rid of Shirley Temple but not be so annoying as to lose Margaret. Well, here's the thing. A triangle is when two women are interested in the same man. Uh, one of the funniest things to me is when <laughs> Margaret was talking about all of the guest speakers at yes. Susan Shirley Temple School. It's just like a naturalist came and you said you were going to be the first woman undersea diver. And just like every time someone came, she decided that was her true goal and career and what she was destined for. Except in this one, she doesn't decide on a career. She's like, I'm going to marry Cary Grant. And be a model. That's her new right. career goal. But I think that was more of a way to get in with Cary Grant than anything else. Yeah. I, we should lay out the plot of this movie, because it is baffling, and we have not done that yet. We'll we'll do it a little bit more as we get into the romance, but the basic premise is that Cary Grant goes to a high school as a guest speaker. Shirley Temple sees him, falls madly in love with him, and tries to get him to agree to let her model for him. He, like kind of agrees as a way of getting her to leave him alone. So then that night, she, like, sneaks out and sneaks into his apartment. He gets home, doesn't really realize she's there. But then Shirley Temple's older sister, Myrna Loy, shows up with the DA being like, hey, old man, why do you have this teenager here in the middle of the night? He punches the DA, which is a crime. And so then the way he gets off is they decide, like, we need Shirley Temple to get over him. And not think of him as, like, a martyr who was jailed on her behalf because of her love. So, Cary Grant, for the crime of punishing the DA, is sentenced to dating Shirley Temple until she gets bored with him. Which is so dumb, and yet somehow, because it's how it's supposed to go, it works. And now, did I have a brief moment of fear that the movie would end with... Shirley Temple and Cary Grant together? Yes. But at the same time, the movie telegraphs very early, like, Cary Grant and Myrna Loy will end up together. Right. So it's all going to be okay. So, yeah. <laughs> you, it's just like you hear the, the plot of the movie and you're like, I do not want to watch this 17-year-old and old man fall in love. But, like, it is funny to watch a movie of Cary Grant trying not to date a teenager. Like, when he 
puts on ridiculous clothes and like rolls up his pants so that they're too short and uses a bunch of slang to try to seem weird and off-putting. The like you remind me of a man thing. I think I've seen that clip, but I didn't know it was from this movie. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? Remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What Good power? morning. Power ho- hmm? Greetings, greetings. Are you out of your mind? Uh, what? What? What are you trying to do? I don't dig you, chick. What are you whispering about? Oh, I'm sorry. Hi, Uncle Matt. Matt. How's the night operator? (laughs) May I present my great uncle, Judge Turner? How do you do, Judge? This isn't a pump handle. He's sharp. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? Remind me of a man. Remind you all. It's like far and away the most famous thing about this movie. It is more famous than the movie. Was that written for this movie? I assumed it wasn't. I believe it is. Oh. I thought it was just, like, something that they incorporated into the movie. No, it's, uh, that's a Sid Sheldon original. Wow. That later became the basis for the babe with the power in David Bowie's Magic Dance in Labyrinth. I was so excited when the grandfather from Meet Me in St. Louis showed up. Yeah, because he's great. Because he's great. And just, like, out of nowhere. And then his character was hilarious. The great uncle who's just increasingly cranky with the madcap antics going on around him. It just noise. He just hates <laughs> noise. So I mentioned this movie's written by Sidney Sheldon. We've actually talked about his work before because he is also one of the credited screenwriters of Easter Parade. That movie Fred Astaire, left Judy Garland so music. little impression in me. It's not a great movie. He also created I Dream of Jeannie, the TV show. Oh, that I did not know. Uh, the movie's directed by Irving Rice, who was like kind of a studio director at Paramount and then RKO in the 40s. Irving Rice collapsed a week into filming this movie, had to be hospitalized, and so he was replaced by producer Dory Sherry for part of the shoot. And when Rice came back, he really just did the technical aspects by all reports, and Dory Sherry continued to like act as the director of actors. Uh, Dory Sherry had been a producer at Selznick International, but he took over as head of production at RKO in 1947. My favorite Dory Sherry story from this movie is that he wanted to change the title because he thought it was too sexually suggestive that we would think The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer were getting together. I think I can't react too hard to that because I didn't know what a Bobby Soxer was until I heard about this movie from you. It's a gal who wears Bobby socks because she's young. It is funny to think about it today, right? You imagine yeah. Sidney Sheldon, who's like, you know, a studio writer, right? Walking into the offices at RKO and being like, all right, I got an idea for our next picture. All right, it's a Cary Grant. We've got him on contract. Studio goes, okay, yes, great, thank you, Cary Grant. We'd love to have a Cary Grant comedy. All right, it's called The Bachelor. They go, of course, Cary Grant is The Bachelor. Makes perfect sense. It's a romantic comedy. We can sell that immediately. Said, no, 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 no. The Bachelor and, they go, oh, what? The Bachelor and, uh, The Bachelor and The Bride, right? The Bachelor and The Burglary, right? There's different angles, different genres we could go. And he goes, The Bachelor and The Bobby Soxer. And then presumably, Dory Sherry goes, absolutely not. (laughs) That that screams sex. That screams an inappropriate relationship. He wanted to call it, I kid you not, too good to be true, which seems way more sexual. That, I don't like. I don't like that at all. It's just like, how is... Too good to be true with Shirley Temple and Cary Grant in a romance. Not more suggestive. Right. I mean, I just didn't know what to expect based off of the name. But I do think that is part of just being like... We don't have Bobby Socks anymore. Yeah, we don't have Bobby Socks anymore. She did occasionally just use slang that I did not know if it was real or made up for the movie. I think some of it's made up. 
Because part of the point of it is that all the older characters don't know what she's talking about. Right, but you never get a sense of if the other kids her age would know what she's talking about. I think sometimes they would, but sometimes not. I also noticed that this movie, it's like, she's at one point wearing what essentially looks like an early version of a poodle skirt as part of the transition to the 50s. I just remembered that too. My favorite Shirley Temple detail in all this, speaking about the transition in her career, her short-lived transition to older roles, because she doesn't actually act that long after this, is that word had gotten out that Shirley Temple in the nightclub scene would take her first on-screen drink. And... This caused a bit of an uproar, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union successfully lobbied RKO to remove that. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Mark, we're less than 20 years removed from Prohibition. That is fair. (laughs) I get it. But it's also just so ridiculous. Yes. Like, I do understand where they're coming from. It's a weird thing to see the, like, child star growing up. I just love how she is wearing a full face of makeup at all times, even when she wakes up in the morning. She's going to be on camera. What do you expect from her? And it's like so noticeable because the other girls at school are not wearing nearly as much makeup as her. So she really does stand out. And even the her boyfriend, they both just look older than everyone else in crowd shots at the school, even though she is like 19 versus the 16 year olds that they hire. Right, she's not really age-inappropriate for the role. But it's still, I think it's just the way that they dress them. And maybe they're just, like, only showing freshmen around them. But at times it is just, like, it's no Dear Evan Hansen. No. But it's still a moment of just being like, huh, they do look older. Jerry, her boyfriend, who's played by Johnny Sands, is so funny to me. Because she speaks about him so dismissively, especially at the basketball game. And afterwards, when she's like, all right, the team won the basketball game. No thanks to you, Jerry. (laughs) Because it's funny because he is like the hottest teen. He's luminous. He looks like the bully from the Fablemans. He is the perfect teen. And she is just so mean to him. (laughs) Like, that's what makes it great. Even before she meets... Cary Grant and like has the the knight in shining armor moment she's still so dismissive of him and all he is is nice to her he's just like desperate to be with her and she's like Jerry why do you suck at basketball so much uh it's so good the bachelor and the bobby soxer premiered at radio city music hall in 1947 it was a hit picture it won the oscar for best original screenplay and was adapted twice for radio both times with Cary Grant and Shirley Temple reprising their roles. Myrna Loy did the first one, but not the second one. It's a good movie. It's it fun. is. It's weird. It's fun. It's weird. It's like so much less problematic than I was expecting. Right. It's like such a minefield of a subject. And it feels like the movie isn't even aware that there are possible bad things it could do. Like it doesn't feel like it's avoiding dicey situations. It feels like it doesn't know they exist. Which is very odd, because this is an era where, like, 18 was probably still the average age of marriage for women. So it is possible that they would get together. We're told at the start of the movie, we're set up for it, because Myrna Loy has recently sentenced a man for dating a teenager. So it is, like, this era of dawning recognition that teenagers still... It's like... 
beginning to see teenagers almost as children still instead of as adults. And it's a movie that acts like that's already firmly established. Like, it's absurd that you would even consider the idea that Cary Grant and Shirley Temple would get together. In a way, this makes it a nice parallel to us starting the month with The Breakfast Club because that movie is all about, like, everyone accepts that teenagers exist and has decided to ignore them. And here it's about asserting teenagers as a different category from adults, largely so that adults can focus on one another instead. Right. And, you know, Margaret, although a successful judge, still is interested in finding love. Yeah. And it's good that she finds an age-appropriate partner to pursue it with. And it's good that he does the same. Myrna Loy is 23 years older than Shirley Temple. Yeah. I guess my grandfather's oldest sister was 20 years older than him. Oh, I'm not saying it's unbelievable. I'm just noting it in terms of these two women pursuing the same man. Oh, right. Yeah. The movie does assert that Cary Grant is 36 years old because towards the end of the movie... Shirley Temple says, when I'm 42, he'll be 60. So it establishes that he's 18 years older than she is, which makes him 35 or 36. Cary Grant at the time was, I believe, 43. He looks 43. Like, (laughs) he still looks great, but decades of smoking multiple packs a day will leave an impact. Right. I don't think he looks old, but he did not look quite so young as the movie was implying. Right. And that kind of helps, I think, avoid the possibility of them getting together in the end. They never feel like a likely pair. No. In part because he asserts from the beginning he does not want it. No, he does not like her at all. There's no <laughs> at any hint, point. There's no hint ever that he might be like, ooh, I can get with a young hottie. Like, that's not on the table. He finds her so off-putting and annoying from moment one, that does not change. I mean, I, I so love their first interaction. I feel like we should start talking about the romance. I guess we could get into this, but I did find it really interesting that they did have Myrna Loy playing Shirley Temple's sister instead of mother, because it would be a lot weirder if he started dating her mother. I That movie's been done, I'm sure. I'm sure, but it do, it is just like another element of the movie kind of realizing like it could be weird. But at the same time, taking steps to avoid a position where it is. You know, this is not quite the same in the terms of, like, dating the parent versus dating the kid. But hashtag Fifi Fierce reached out to me after our Cinderella story episode to say, speaking of Chad Michael Murray, we have not done Freaky Friday. And that has some romance in it. Oh, we should add that to the list. Yeah, we should do Freaky Friday. But I do think we should get into the romance of this movie. Because it is the main point and so weird. Great. Every week we break down the romance into five points to guide our conversations. So Will, will you take us to point one? All right. So uh, basically our first point we have to address how Cary Grant playing Richard Nugent, Dickie Nugent, meets both Shirley Temple and Myrna Loy. He meets Myrna Loy first because he was involved in a bar fight the night before and all the various people from the bar fight have been brought into court to stand before the judge for judgment. Now, this doesn't feel like how courts work. (laughs) What makes you say that? I don't really understand how her courtroom seems to operate. Well, see, you understand when there are a bunch of people involved in a crime, then you just have them all line up, and one by one, in front of each other, they tell you what happened. And then, if the judge so wishes, she can dismiss all of them and tell them to be better behaved. 
this movie does not care much for the law. Oh, do you think the legal system in this movie is a little out of whack? It's confusing, to say the least. A movie in which, again, a man is sentenced to date a teenager? Like, some kind of weird, like, Grimm's fairy tale situation? It's baffling. I kind of love it. We have to mention again that the bar that the fight happens in is the Vampire Club. Uh, it's so weird. I was so thrown off. I just kept thinking about the Vampire Nightclub from what we do in the shadows. Right, like... It's just oh, such a terrible name, and it's so boring. Like, the nightclub itself looks so boring. But it's a vampire club. So, I don't know what's going on with that. But Myrna Loy is very unimpressed with Richard Nugent because he is late to court and trying to get out again as quickly as possible because he has an appointment. Yes, because he has to get to the school. It's never very clear why he is late. Um, He says his, like, clock wasn't working. Oh, that's right. He forgot to wind his watch. Yeah. So she's like, this guy's annoying. I don't ever want to see him in my courtroom again. Meanwhile, the DA, who is sweet on her, is trying to get her to give him a sentence. The DA is like, this guy keeps being involved in weird crimes. Like, we want to nail him. And Cary Grant's defense is like, I'm an artist. I go to weird situations and crimes happen there. It's not my fault. Which, in this case, is true. Right, the movie is like, this is correct. This is what happens to an artist. They go to weird places and crimes happen. Right, because he wasn't involved in the fight. No. Two women started fighting over him. Right, because he's such a hottie. But that's about it. So then Cary Grant goes to the school to give his speech. As the students are filing in, Jerry, the basketball teen, tells Shirley Temple that it's not fair that she won't date him because she doesn't actually want to date a real person He's competing with an ideal. He's competing with some knight in shining armor that she's waiting for. Is it okay for Saturday night, Susie? You promised. Promises are the hollow shells of undone deeds. Well, for guy's sakes, what's that supposed to mean? You're a nice boy, Jerry, but you're callow. Not too callow to buy your sodas or take you to a movie when your allowance runs out. Don't create a scene. Only reason I'm not good enough for you is because you're looking for knight in shining armor. I'm competing with something medieval. Don't be a stoop. Which is uh, taken to a bit of an extreme. Yes. This movie is many things, and it's not subtle, because then as Cary Grant goes out to speak, all the kids are not interested in the speech until they see Cary Grant and realize he's hot, and then they all applaud wildly. Even the boys, which I found very funny. Everyone but Jerry applauds wildly when they see Cary Grant. And... Shirley Temple watches the speech, but for a lot of it, she is just picturing him as a gleaming knight. And we do see Cary Grant dressed in plate armor. It's so funny. It's so It's funny. so weird. It's such a cheap look, too. It's such a bad suit of armor. Yeah. Which is only, like, we'll get to it later, but it's only brought home more when Margaret has the same, like, vision. It's... I was just like, they should not have shown this armor again. It's so bad. But at the end of the speech, Susan, like, lurks around Susan Shirley Temple to introduce herself to him. And she, like, kind of makes a show of introducing herself. Like, I'm Susan Turner. And then clearly has nothing to say after that. It's so clear she just wants to talk to him because she has a crush. It's really funny because Cary Grant is just, like, standing there waiting for her to say something else so he can move on. And she just won't until finally... She declares that she is the editor-in-chief of the newspaper and needs to interview him. Now, I am certain she does not write for the school newspaper. It is never 
established if she does or not. She does not end up writing an article. It's right. never shown on screen. So I think she fully made it up. I think so too. I think it's a lie she came up with to chat. Right. And he has no interest in as she like launches in by asking if he's married, if he has a girlfriend, anything like that. You feel so bad for him. It is fun when he starts having fun with it and making up his own backstory. He talks about he was orphaned when his parents carried out their suicide pact. And so then he moved to New York to live on the street stealing crusts. And she's eating it up. She's like, wow, this tortured artist, he's so hot. I need to be his model. And she's demanding that he let her model. And he's eventually just like, fine, okay, you can model for me. Let me leave. Which she eventually does. But she's very pleased with herself because she's like, I'm going to be a model. I'm going to be a model for Dickie Nugent. Convinced that he's in love with her. Her confidence is just so funny because it is so... She's like the most confident teenage girl I've seen in a movie in a long time, except maybe like Tracy Flick. She's so good because she has reached the point where she thinks she knows everything and she thinks she's smarter than everyone else. And she has nothing meaningful to say. <laughs> no. Because she's a 17-year-old. Uh, right. So that kind of takes us to point number two, where that night, Susan sneaks out of the house to go to Richard Nugent's apartment and wait to model for him. She is led into his apartment by the teenage bellhop. The 15-year-old. Yeah. Very clear. And she falls asleep on Cary Grant's couch waiting for him to come home. And she has done herself up like full adult. She is ready to model and maybe more. She's definitely like put in the effort to look, to dress like a 30-year-old. Yes, it's funny seeing her like that. And Cary Grant gets home, like doesn't even see her there. It it really pushes the bounds of believability (laughs) how long he goes. He like looks at her and doesn't see her until she wakes up. And right as she wakes up, Myrna Loy and her buddy, Tommy, the DA, are banging on the door, but because they figured out, like, oh my gosh, that's where she'd have gone. She said she was going to model. And they bust in. They start yelling at him about seducing teenagers. Cary Grant's naturally upset about that, so he punches the DA in the face and gets arrested for it. It's not made clear what is going on to him before he punches the assistant DA, according to him, at least. I think everybody kind of agrees with that, that the DA and Myrna Loy burst in and are throwing around accusations, probably just throwing names at him. And he's like, why did these people just burst into my apartment? And it is late, and he's probably not at his best. No, I think he is basically fine, and everyone would recognize that if it wasn't the legal system that had burst into his apartment. Yeah. If it was not the judge, the assistant DA... Like, the judge's uncle is the court psychiatrist. This family has it locked down. He's so sympathetic, this man. Yeah. So, as we said, basically the deal they strike is you can stand for the crime of assaulting an assistant DA, or you can date Shirley Temple until she decides she's done with you. Because they're worried if he goes to jail, she'll fixate on him. Like, oh, our tragic love. This man went to jail for our love. And they're like, if you just date her, she'll get bored of you because you're not a fun teenager. Right. Which I understand that logic, but it's But it's absurd. <laughs> it is a preposterous thing. It would obviously not hold up in court. No. Except that this family runs the court. I get the sense that these people run LA. It's the sham of democracy. They have too much power. 
So this takes us to point number three, which is the absurd fake dating situation, which kicks off when Cary Grant takes Susan to a high school basketball game. We had a much better team last season, but our star center graduated. Too bad. I think our new center needs more experience. Oh, at least. He used to be sort of a boyfriend of mine. What? Oh, until I met you. You mean that fine-looking young man who smiled at you? Number seven? Yes, that's the one. He's just a child. Is he in love with you? Oh, I suppose so. But you needn't be jealous, Richard. He's really terribly unsophisticated. I, again, the whole movie you're watching, you're just like, ugh, this poor guy. Because now he's stuck in a high school basketball game. Just, like, hanging out with high schoolers. She is practically heckling her own team as a way of showing off to Jerry that she's there with another man. Yeah, and poor Jerry does absolutely lose focus. Yeah. Well, she calls him over. Jerry gets benched because he's doing such a bad job. She calls him over and it's like, Jerry, I wanted you to show off my new man. This is Mr. Nugent. He's a real man, not a child like you, Jerry. <laughs> she's such a brat. Like, she's also so clearly obsessed with Jerry still. Yeah. They go out for ice cream after this, right? It's the same night? Yes. And Cary Grant spends the whole time hyping up Jerry. Like, he immediately realizes, like, oh, she's fixated on this guy. And so he's constantly going, like, Jerry's a pretty hot guy. Like, I played basketball and I stunk. Like, Jerry's pretty good. And she's like, no, Jerry stinks. He's the worst player on the team. Which, it's clear, like, he's not except for the fact that she messed with his head. Right. Yeah. Jerry comes in, sits down, and Cary Grant keeps trying to, like, reorient the triangle of the table so that it's him and the two of them. That it's like, oh, you two, like, I bet you you two have a lot in common. And she's like, no, Jerry's a boy. He's a child. I'm an adult. Right. Cary Grant takes her home and spends the entire time, like, trying to wind her up of, like, look, it's kind of embarrassing for both of us to be together. Like, you don't want to be with an old man. And she's like, I'm an old soul. I get it. But Cary Grant does stick to the plan, kind of, of, like, trying to convince her to get with Jerry. Yes. Like, that becomes his goal. He's like, the way to get her over me is to get her with Jerry. Which is... Also fair. What's funny is how much Jerry accepts it. And this kind of gets at what you were talking about, about, like, this window of time where, like, it is still kind of not that unusual to see a teenage girl with an older man. Where, like, Jerry never questions that Cary Grant is too old for Shirley Temple. He just sees him as friendly competition. Like, there's this scene where Cary Grant shows up to take Susan to the picnic, and Jerry's waiting outside, and Jerry's just like, you know how it is, Mr. Nugent. It's hard to get Susan out of your system. (laughs) He's just like, Richard Nugent, you and I get each other. We're in the same boat with this girl. And Richard's just like, I don't like her. (laughs) Jerry, I would love it if you took her away from me. Please leave me alone. All of you. And this is where he then like puts his hat on backwards, rolls his pant legs up. He's trying to seem childish. This is where he first does the, you remind me of a man sequence. To, again, just be alarming and off-putting to people. Right. Because he's like, oh, she's into me because I'm older. Let me be a child so that Jerry seems like the more attractive option. Right. If her options are two children, she should date the child. Yeah. But that's actually after the nightclub, though, right? So the big nightclub sequence is later than this. That's like almost the end of the movie. 
Okay. Because that happens when he and Myrna Loy are on really good terms. And the shift with the two of them happens at the picnic. Right. Because, bizarrely, it is seeing him compete in the obstacle courses that makes Myrna Loy start to be like, you know, he is kind of a good guy. Because sometimes you see a man as a common crook, a petty criminal, a troublemaker. But then you see him in a sack race, and you're like, I could see him in my sack. A very odd thing happened to me today, Uncle Matt. I think it's very simple to explain. Optical illusions have been known to, uh, uh, or the power of suggestion through Susan. Uh, these things have been, uh, well, uh, obviously what happened to me was a combination of the heat, a too hurried lunch, and all the excitement. Of course. I think it was merely a question of my thinking that I thought I saw him, you understand? Oh, sure. That's all perfectly clear. The same thing has happened to me. In view of this, however, it occurred to me that... that, um, Mr. Nugent? That Mr. Nugent has been very sweet about Susan, and I don't think we ought to embarrass him any longer. Oh, yes, but if Susan has... I think Susan's romance is an adolescent one, and I think she'll get over it. He is, at this point, also making it clear that he does not want to be with Susan. Right. He is clearly not the skis that they feared at first. Which Margaret appreciates. Like he sees it as a punishment to be doing this, which I think is a good sign to Margaret. So what's funny is around the end of this day, everyone is trying to wrap up the arrangement except for Susan. Cary Grant has been trying to wrap it up the whole time because he never wanted to date Susan. Myrna Loy starts trying to be like, I think it's about time that we can wrap it up. Like she wants to end it so that she can date Cary Grant. The assistant DA wants to end it so that Cary Grant stops hanging around Myrna Loy because. The assistant DA wants to date Myrna Loy. So, like, everyone's trying to put a stop to it. But that kind of brings us to point number four. Oh, we should shout out Matt, the uncle who this whole time is basically pushing from the beginning, trying to push Margaret and Richard together. Well, even before they meet Richard, he's just trying to push her towards the concept of having a, a husband, including at one point being like, you know, Shirley Temple would cause fewer problems if there were a man in the house. But again, the thing is, it doesn't actually, like, he's not doing this with the idea that it's like, it is unseemly that you are a woman judge and should get married. It's just like, he believes that she would be happier with a husband and not quitting her job, which is just like, you know, also made me not hate him as much as I was expecting to. Again, this movie has no interest in the possible problems that you would expect culturally from this movie and this premise in 1947. Yeah, exactly. So the nightclub sequence is incredible because what happens is Myrna Loy calls up Cary Grant and is like, look, I think we can probably end the arrangement. Like, there's really no need for us to keep doing this. And he's like, okay, like, why don't we meet up this evening and we can talk about the future of it all? And the two of them are clearly being like, we can meet up and talk about our future together. So they go to a fancy, like, nightclub, like, dinner and dancing kind of place. And they're having a nice little evening. Except when it gets occasionally interrupted by other women who are in love with Cary Grant, who are naturally everywhere. Well, it's only one this time. That's true. Otherwise, there may have been another brawl. The woman from the brawl originally is there with another man who is hilarious, celebrating her birthday. And so she, of course, wants to say hi to Dickie and dances with them. and refuses to take no for an answer and joins them at their table for dinner when Margaret and Richard go sit down to avoid them. The part where it gets truly great is when Susan bursts in after having tried to meet up with Cary Grant that night, walks up to their table, 
announces, I don't intend to make a scene, practically shouting it across the room, says, I won't stay long, sits down, orders food. I love that. And the whole scene, like you said, this is kind of the centerpiece scene, especially of the comedy, as it keeps escalating with just adding more and more people to the table. Jerry shows up, announces that he's been drafted. He's here trying to lock down Susan before he goes. The assistant DA shows up. Like, everybody's there just arguing over how these romances should resolve. And it's chaotic. It's incredible. (laughs) And everybody leaves mad. And everyone leaves mad. And they all storm home, and that takes us to point number five, which is our finale, where off-screen, Uncle Matt, the psychiatrist, convinces Shirley Temple she doesn't want to date an older man. Doctor-patient confidentiality. All we know is that he explains the math of dating an older man and how he will continue to be older. Which, you know, like, it is something I can very easily see her not thinking about, and then all of a sudden, like, having that pointed out, is a deal breaker. But it is funny that apparently that's all it took. Right. It could have avoided a lot of drama if he had jumped in earlier. Right. So he convinces Myrna Loy to go on vacation to the same place that he knows Cary Grant is going so that then they can meet up at the airport, be delighted by one another's presence, and go off to Saudi Arabia? New York? The ticket just said New York when we see it, I thought. His destination is Saudi. Is it really? I That's what he that. said. I'm pretty sure. No, I think he says that as a joke about escaping as far away as possible. That would make more sense. But the ticket, because they show the ticket. Like, Matt looks at the ticket so he can buy the right flight, and I think it just said New York on it. Mark, what you're saying makes sense. I'm dumb is the answer you're looking for. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> All right. Because I think it would be difficult to convince Margaret to just take a quick little trip to Saudi Arabia to I get her surprised. mind together. <laughs> All right, Mark. Do you find the romance of The Bachelor and the Bobby Sox are believable? Not really. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't need to be. I w- it would have been worse if it was. Yeah. Um... I don't know what to do with this one. I be- it is preposterous. I, I believe that Susan would fall in love with Richard. Um, yes. That she would get, like, a crush on the hot guy who came to speak. Yes. I can see why Richard is attracted to Margaret. I don't really see Margaret being attracted to Richard. No, I think he is not sophisticated enough for her. I think her negative initial perception of him is pretty strong. That said, I don't understand why anyone would sign on to the mandatory dating plan. Right. So, I think largely no, though. Yeah, so where would you rate this from 0 to 10, where 0 means you believe no romance and 10 means you believe it all? It's not a 0. Because I believe, like, this Susan having a crush on Richard, I believe Susan getting over that crush and getting with Jerry. I think I'm, like, a two on this, though. I was thinking, like, a three. I just don't see the, like, Myrna loy Cary Grant relationship. Yeah. I do think the Jerry stuff is very funny. It is. Everything with Jerry. But I also believe that Jerry would still be in love with her even after she treats him that badly, because teenagers are dumb. Oh, of course. All right, you talked me up to a three. Uh, do you think any of the people in this movie are dateable? Um, any of our, like, romantic people? I mean, look, Margaret is pretty dateable. Margaret's biggest red flag is getting a crush on Richard Nugent. Yeah. 
But like Margaret at the start of the movie, I get why the assistant DA is into her. I also think that Richard Nugent is fairly dateable too. He's a bit of a, a scumbag. I think it's more that I don't see Margaret and him getting together than that he's undateable. Yeah, I agree on that. Susan clearly has some growing up to do. Yes. Uh, do you think that Margaret and Dickie Nugent will stay together? I love that Susan calls him Dickie all the time. It's very funny. Probably not. And the movie also doesn't necessarily make us believe that because the movie ends with them just going on a trip together independently. Yeah, I mean, they're going to go on the trip together. Like, they're going to go on the trip together. They'll date. But honestly, that is also one thing that probably lifts the believability of it is they it did not end with a wedding. Yes. It didn't even end with a relationship. If you did have to pick one person to date, whom would you choose? I don't know. It's always hard to pick in these screwball comedies because, like, Everyone's a maniac. Everyone is so unrealistic. Because even yeah. the like side characters are given some distinguishing characteristic. The teacher like can't see. Tommy, the assistant DA, is like kind of mean. The uncle is weird, just like all around. I think I have to go with Uncle Dr. Matt, the court psychiatrist. I think I'm going to go with the Mater D at the nightclub who is friends with Richard Nugent. It helps oh, him sure. in shenanigans. Yeah, of course. That's a good pull. Um, all right, Mark, should The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer be adapted into a stage musical? If it was adapted into a stage musical in the 40s or 50s, yes. It is not a story we need to revisit. I think it could make a fun play. Yeah, more of a play than a musical. I don't think this is the kind of thing that is going to work if you stop to sing. No. So, probably not. But again, yeah. we should probably not leave it as it is. I think it's good that we made this movie in 1947 and we don't need to do anything with it now except watch it because it's fun. Right. Like, it's worth a watch, but it's it's of its time. Honestly, it's less of its time than I was expecting. And it's of its time in interesting and, and compelling ways. Right. Also, some very interesting design, like decor yeah. to look at. All right. Well, Mark, I'm so glad that you finally saw this movie. Thank you for bringing it to the show. I hope others watch it as well it's been fun doing this month of high school romances just as a way of considering them as a unit right and getting to see like different iterations of the american teenager one could even say their secret lives oh yes <laughs> um i think i'll try to put together some more of these like theme months for us just for the heck of it because you know we, we could be covering anything so we might as well cover something with a purpose but next week, we will be covering something else with a purpose, which is all of the Oscar Best Picture nominees. Right. As is our custom, we will be talking through the romances of all 10 Best Picture nominees and seeing which wins the Oscar for Most Believable Love Story. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod and on Blue Sky at We Love the Love. Yep, that's us. And you can email us questions and movies, suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer? I mean, the central advice of the movie is date someone who's age appropriate and you'll be happier. Date someone who's interesting, your age, and not wanting to date a teenager and it'll all work out. Okay. I like I like that your advice is like, if someone doesn't want to date a teenager, that's a good sign. That's a green <laughs> that's flag. That's a green flag. You know what? Unfortunately, still a thing that applies. 
Yep, that's fair. <laughs> there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. 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 Remind me of the babe. I saw my baby.